Hello everyone, welcome to the Gibbs Spotlight. My name is Kathleen Danewald and I'm a communications intern at the Gibbs College of Architecture. Today we are speaking with Dr. Vonda Katya Lieberman, a practicing architect and architectural and urban historian. She is also an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Oklahoma. Her upcoming book focuses on architecture, disability, and accessibility. It's titled Architecture's Disability Problem and is published by Rutledge. Thank you so much for joining us today. So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your upcoming book? What's it about and how did you come up with the topic? Well, to start, thank you for inviting me to share my um, research with you and the Gibbs College and beyond. So my book comes from many years of research and practice uh, in architecture um, before I even considered becoming an academic. And it emerged because I started practicing kind of soon after the time that the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. And I think it's possible that there is no profession that has been more profoundly impacted by the ADA, as it's called. And yet architects, certainly in its early days, and unfortunately still continuing today, have really resisted um, making spaces accessible, um, thinking about architecture as something that is meant to serve everyone, and uh, still kind of ends up being a, a kind of, I would say, almost an opposition or a reluctance to deal with those issues. And part of that has to do with the fact that the building code itself is not sort of the funnest way to think through an architectural project. And that is primarily how accessibility is um, inserted or or organized in architectural practice. And so after practicing for, you know, almost a decade and a half, I also had an interest in doing more academic research. I had been teaching at UC Berkeley as an uh, adjunct for many years and studio. And I just kept noticing that among my colleagues and within academia and teaching architecture studio, that there just was very little uptake or very little creative movement, even as things like environmental concerns were really, you know, spurring all kinds of new academic and uh, professional programs. And Berkeley, and where I was both a student and um, a longtime resident, is kind of both the home of a lot of environmental movements and a disability rights movement. And so I was, it was just hard to not notice that there was such a different uptake of these different kind of movements or threads in architecture. Um, And so my book um, is first and foremost, a kind of um, exploration of what currently is being taught in architecture and how architecture does order disability, you could say. and, you know, sort of an analysis or critique of the Americans with Disabilities Act's design guidelines, and also sort of thinking about the place in architectural education, the studio, which is really the center of learning architectural values for design that students encounter. And, and then I use three case studies that actually go quite a lot beyond the Americans with Disabilities Act and really think through, you know, the meaning of access as it's typically considered in design is quite limited. And these different case studies really explore what does it mean to create truly accessible spaces? How has access been defined by different groups of people? And what does it take to do that kind of access? Because it might actually mean a reorganization of architectural practice from its current form. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, super interesting to hear about your background. And Berkeley was, was it the first place that like curb cuts were a big thing? Yeah, I listened to an urban planning, probably podcast about that a while ago. And so interesting to hear about that. Um, so really cool to hear that about your background. So you already touched on this, but is there anything else you wanted to mention about like why you're interested in the topic of architecture and disability? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think whenever you encounter something in the world or in your life that just seems like, you know, an absence or a void or like, especially kind of silence that is, yeah, it's kind of almost a loud silence. I feel like it's worthy of investigation. And so there were I just felt like there was really something here um, to to explore and in and exploring it, it reveals a lot of deeper values in society and in the design profession. And I think I I think this is sort of, you know, if you're thinking about like looking through a queer lens or a feminist lens, right, those things have also happened in kind of earlier ways and continue to happen. And of course, most recently, there's been also a kind of racial reckoning in architectural uh, education and profession. Um, and I, I feel like these are all kind of um, like learning from the margins as someone has uh, a co colleague of mine said. Um, so the idea that you actually can see the center of something or the kind of mainstream of something by looking at it from the periphery. And I think you have a clear perspective. And I think it's also really, um, I'm thinking also about my audience or who I, imagine my readership will be. And so for me, um, it's really important foremost to try to explore some of these issues and in their sort of deeper social implications for designers, because I really want designers who frankly are not always exposed to a lot of like culture critique or political philosophy and things like that. I want them to really think deeply and maybe be inspired by the kind of implications of their design decisions and uh, and even their sort of design background. And then I also want to touch, you know, the minds of people who are in the disability studies and disability activism community, because I think those two worlds don't have that much overlap. And I think really thinking about what it takes to do a design, how constrained an architectural profession actually is, um, will hopefully also create a little bit of you know, uh, um, illumination on all the different sort of sides that are engaged in this process. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. I'm not an architecture student, but like to hear from friends who are architecture students and just other architects about like the problem of designing for everyone is just, it's kind of crazy to hear, you know, oh, we're designing these buildings, but like you got to think about the users of the buildings um, and stuff like that but super cool to hear about why you're interested in that topic. And you've also touched on this a little bit, but what do you think the biggest problems are when it comes to architecture and disability? Well, I think the problem is sort of in some ways bigger than disability itself. I mean, my kind of discovery in my time as an educator and a practitioner is that I actually think that the body and various forms of embodiment as a whole are really kind of under considered, that's a verb, you know, so when you were just saying that students or, you know, are sort of being asked to design for everybody or everyone, what does that actually mean? And how can we, how can we as designers 
learn what it means or, you know, learn how to do such a thing. You know, mostly things like the building code or various kinds of graphic standards or time savers, which are sort of these Bibles of architectural prescriptions and minimum and maximum or average standards. They, uh, they are kind of flattening out of the human embodied norms and experiences. And I think, you know, there is a very strong tendency in architecture to want to make beautiful objects. And by that, I don't even mean spaces, you know, and I think in some ways, some of the digital tools we have encourage that even further. So that, that, and because of the difference in scale, we are making representations that are small, much smaller than the actual spaces. And so we keep thinking about them as objects, as opposed to as future spaces. And I think that has a tendency to make the human body disappear. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it's super interesting to hear about the design process. Anytime I talk to anyone in architecture, it's always interesting because I'm an outsider. So hearing about it is always interesting to hear and how the process has changed with digital mediums. I talked to like students today who almost always work in like digital formats and mediums. And they say they love making physical models, but they don't get to do it as much as they wish they did. Um, the interior design students this semester with their furniture um, studio always told us like, oh, we've been online for so long that getting to make things with our hands and getting to make a human sized furniture piece that someone will actually get to use versus a computer model is exciting. So it's interesting to see how that plays out in even bigger things with buildings and digital and physical models. I think there's actually even a link. You you said something very interesting, which is I think there's actually a link with making things yourself, being in your body and making physical things actually, I think, even generates maybe a different mindset that makes you think about or projects your own body into space in a different way when you're designing that the digital does not. And I know that sort of makes me sort of a Luddite, but or makes me sound like a Luddite. I'm 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 not at all against the digital tools. I think it's a problem though that people don't recognize that digital tools come with pretty strong, you know, leanings in them, you know, built into the software. And so there's not that much critique of how the software itself might shape your thinking about your projects as you design them. Yeah, I think in any field, it's easy to fall into the trap of there's no biases in digital programs when someone had to make the program. <laughs> so there's inherent biases built in. And I think that's just a problem in all fields, not just architecture. Well, I think all the um, controversies over AI has definitively yeah. proven that there's <laughs> bias built, human humans built into the machine, right? Definitely. So what immediate steps do you think should be taken to fix architecture's accessibility problem? Well, like I said, I mean, one of the things might be to think about it beyond an accessibility problem or to maybe expand what accessibility means. Like, I think it's almost like architecture's body problem or sort of human problem in a way. But, you know, I think, I mean, OU is actually not necessarily uh, a bad place to start. I mean, we're recently sort of starting to develop some inclusive curriculum um, that I am um, taking part in and working with others on. And um, I think in some ways it does take being having faculty that are more open because the values for future practice are instilled often in studio. Um, and so you have to, I think, devise interesting projects and that have values embedded in them and objectives embedded in them. I mean, continuing to have books, hopefully, and other things, articles and stuff that cross over between um, what 
sort of access and disability activism, how they perceive the built environment versus how architects, I don't want to cast it so much as a binary or as an opposition, but there is a lot of that sentiment in uh, in those worlds, both worlds. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a kind of slow process. I think any any kind of large justice question is always going to be a very long slog in a way, right? I mean, I don't think that we could say that any of the social justice movements of the last many decades have at, at all achieved a kind of conclusive, you know, success. They're still work, works in progress. And, you know, hopefully the new generation of students will really think about how they want to contribute their kind of sense of spatial justice to the field and include people with disabilities into the fold beyond thinking about questions of, for example, race, which is, of course, extremely important. But a lot of times the tools of spatial justice for people with disabilities are closer to hand in some ways, because there's this very kind of physical, concrete dimension of how to make spaces accessible for people with disabilities that may be a little bit more abstract or less concrete seeming than for race. So kind of circling back to your book in, in the same vein of like, steps that could be taken. How do you think reading your book could help architects and architecture students improve their design practices? I hope that they will recognize themselves or their education in some of the things that I've written. And so that I hope that that makes it a kind of very, um, a relatable sort of reading. Um, I'm trying to make it written in a non sort of academic and more accessible way. Um, with, you know, without simplifying sort of complex ideas for people. I think the three case studies section, which is the largest section of the book, I hope will be illuminating um, for people because I think there are sort of less well-known areas of practice that I hope to kind of shine a light on and sort of having students. And I, and I think my um, experience both as a practitioner and as a scholar enables me maybe to make some connections between sort of abstract ideas and really specific material details and spatial forms and things like that. And I hope that that will be illuminating and maybe it'll give people and students some ideas for wanting to pursue or investigate those avenues a little bit more. Awesome. So thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you wanted to add um, before we go? No, but I want to thank you very much and the spotlight um, for taking an interest in my work and my upcoming book. And um, this was a great interview, some great questions. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. But before we completely go, can you tell us where or when we should keep an eye out for your book and how someone could get a copy once it's released? Yes, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, it is um, from published by Rutledge. It should be out in very early 2024, so it's a little ways to go. Um, I hope it will be in lots of uh, libraries, and it, I'm sure it will be available on Amazon and also from the Rutledge website itself. Um, not to plug, you know, <laughs> behemoth uh, online <laughs> retailers. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's that will be, and of course I. Maybe at that point, there'll be another opportunity to hold some kind of event at uh, at the Gibbs College about it. Yeah, I could definitely see us doing a follow-up interview and a, definitely a blog um, plug for the book once it comes out. 
But thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for sharing your upcoming book with us. Well, thank you so very much. Thanks again for listening to the Gibbs Spotlight. Tune in next time to hear more stories from the Gibbs College of Architecture.